0: Hi, this is ETF.com's Exchange Traded Fridays podcast, a weekly podcast covering developments in the ETF industry. I'm managing editor, Heather Bell, and I'm joined by my colleague, senior ETF analyst, Samit Roy. Hey, Samit.
1: Hey, Heather. Happy Friday.
0: Happy Friday, indeed. So, Sameet, one of the things that really struck me this week was Shabum's article on the inflows to Vanguard and BlackRock so it looks like Vanguard pulled in 25.7 billion in the ETFs during the first quarter. But BlackRock had an outflow of about 500 million, uh I believe. So I thought that was interesting, just that gap between BlackRock and Vanguard in the US ETF market remains about 300 million separating them from BlackRock's first, you know, top of the league tables position and vanguard's position in number 2 and i just thought that was really interesting
1: yeah yeah it's interesting and it kind of re- reinforces that idea that vanguard's investors will just keep plowing money into their etfs through thick and thin while blackrock's investors are a little more you know diverse in the sense that some are traders some are buy and hold and this year obviously people are really really pessimistic about Equities in general. If you look at the overall inflows for ETFs, U.S. equity ETFs, you'll see that in the first quarter they didn't collect any money, and that's the first time it's happened in many years, and maybe even ever, really. Uh, and that just tells you how pessimistic people are about U.S. stocks, and that's reflected in the BlackRock flows, right? Most of the the reason that BlackRock flows have been so weak this year is because people have pulled money out of some of the BlackRock equity ETFs. While on the other hand, they have moved money into the BlackRock fixed income ETFs, the Treasury ETFs, things like that are seeing billions of dollars of inflow. So it's a little more of a mixed picture for BlackRock, while for Vanguard, it's just that well-oiled machine that continues to collect money. It's just a totally different investor base.
0: Yeah, I think they're just much more devoted to the concept of dollar cost averaging.
1: Yeah, it's always a great strategy, right? Buy and whole dollar cost average.
0: Here's the, the one thing I was wondering about that, you know, you, I know you keep tabs on is this uh, halving of the Bitcoin, uh, I think, next year that happens once every four years, like the Olympics. And that seems to be driving up prices. We're over 30,000, I think, right now in terms of what a single Bitcoin costs. Do you have any thoughts on that or any opinions on where Bitcoin price is going to go?
1: Yeah yeah exactly once every 4 years just like the olympics and that is yeah when the rewards to the bitcoin miners get cut in half uh, you know a lot of people listening probably have heard that you know the bitcoin protocol depends on these entities which are called miners and the miners verify transactions and they secure the bitcoin network and to do that they contribute a lot of computing power and that computing power Costs money. They're not contributing uh, that for free. They ex- expect a return on their investment. So the protocol was designed so that the miners get what's known as a block reward or freshly minted Bitcoin as compensation for providing their services and that competing power to the network. Now, if you look at the block words currently, they're 6.25 Bitcoin per every block that's added to the blockchain. And that's going to get cut in half to 3.125 Bitcoin per block sometime in April or May of 2024, so around a year from now. And the thing I wrote in an article earlier this week is there's high expectations surrounding the Bitcoin halving because every time it's happened, historically, there's been a run-up before and after the halving. So it rallied at least 15% in the 150 days after the halving, according to data from Cointelegraph. And it's rallied at least 19% in the year leading up to the halving. And those are the minimum returns. The other two times, uh, it rallied much more than those numbers. So given this strong historical precedent, people are expecting positive things. Again, Uh, this time around. And that might be a reason why Bitcoin has been rallying lately. You know, it's doubled from something like 15K last November up to 30K today. But like I wrote in the article, uh, of course, no trade is going to work forever. So it's probably a good idea to be a little bit cautious. You know, maybe history will repeat, maybe it won't, but I wouldn't bet the farm on it. No trade will last forever, right?
0: Yeah. Absolutely. And anytime a lot of people, you know, the majority thinks something is going to happen in the markets with any investment, it usually doesn't happen. So yeah, exactly. (laughs) Maybe that's superstition, but I, I feel like that's something I've observed. We should probably bring our guest on to the program right now. Our guest today is Kevin Simpson, founder and CEO of Capital Wealth Planning. Thanks for joining us, Kevin.
2: Thanks for having me, Heather.
0: Kevin, you are kind of an options guru, but stepping back a bit, I was wondering what are you telling or messaging to your firm's clients right now when they express concerns about things like market crashes, inflation or recession or whatever else may be going on in the markets right now?
2: Well, you know, I think it's our job as professional money managers to always worry about the worst case scenarios. And when we think about the emotional aspect of finance and money in particular, it's normal to, to be concerned about uh, those worst case scenarios. And I, I, I tend to look at the landscape of the markets and think we're we're not at the precipice of another 2008 correction or another 2020 correction. Certainly there, there's uh, headwinds in, in markets and, and with the economy. And if we just look at the regional bank situation and that mini crisis in particular, Concern is warranted, but I don't think fear is. And and, and it's so cliche to talk about long term investing and, and a long term thesis. But I think you really have to have that anytime you're invested in equities. Because most of us who are looking at equities as a long term uh, way of generating true wealth, we're not we're not in there trying to trade minute by minute, tick by tick, or even week by week. So I I would say that we're we're in store for a market that's somewhat range bound. I wouldn't be looking to um, plan for the next correction.
1: Great advice, Kevin. And as Heather said, you're obviously very well-versed in options. So I wanted to ask you, covered call strategies seem to be really popular in the ETF space right now. Can you tell us what these are and how they benefit investors?
2: Well, I, I can speak on Devo, which is an ETF sponsored by Amplify that we subadvise. advise And this is the sixth year that we've been working with them. And, and I'll focus on that as the example that we're using because I can speak firsthand. But in general, it's great to see more and more covered call strategies coming out in an ETF wrapper because they they do uh, pr- you know help promote the sector. You know, I've been doing this for over thirty years, and I would say that even today, covered calls, options in general, are still something a little bit outside of the norm. And and I don't think for the you know for for any particular good reason. Especially the conservative nature that covered call writing brings to a portfolio. It's its objective is to help smooth out the ride, reduce volatility, and, and in large part to, to help modestly buffer downside capture. You, you may forfeit a little upside, but I think for many investors, if you can forfeit a little upside to, to protect some downside, you're 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 willing to make that trade-off. So Uh, I'm excited to see more and more covered call strategies entering the market because I think it promotes the entire space. And and I know that some of our uh, competitors and and peers out there are are doing a phenomenal job of of spreading the gospel of covered call writing. So the more the merrier.
0: That's awesome. Um, Are there any other option strategies beyond covered calls that investors should be considering in the current environment or any other environment really right now? (laughs)
2: Yeah, Heather, you hit it perfectly. I think in any environment, you know, hedging strategies make sense to reduce risk. And covered calls are a great way to do that, but they're certainly not the only way to do it. In in our products and our, our ETFs, it's it's the only option component that we bring into the picture. But I think if we're expanding beyond that, using protective puts is another great way for investors to utilize a, a little bit of a portfolio insurance. And, it, and it's also something that's, I think, um, sh- shrouded as a mystery, but it shouldn't be. You know, if you think about it, we insure so many things in our lives, our homes, our cars, our lives in general. Uh, that that when when we when we think about our portfolios as being such a large percentage of of our assets, it's 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 few and far between where you find a retail investor that's using protection or insurance in their investment portfolios. So. If I was to suggest a, a, another way to look at options in a defensive mindset beyond simply covered call writing, which is our, our forte, protective put writing is another great way to, to help protect a little bit of a portfolio downside. Also something that's reducing risk. And, and those are things that I think are terrific for people to educate themselves on.
1: So, so you mentioned, Kevin, you know, using options as a potential hedge. When you use options to hedge uh, down, downside long term, do you inevitably end up with something like kind of like a defined outcome strategy where, like you mentioned, you cap your up- upside, but you also cap your downside? Are there ways to potentially you know, um, hedge tail risk, right, like a black swan or something that is compelling and doesn't cost too much?
2: Yeah, I, I think you, you illustrated exactly how I like to think about it, Samit, because there are definitely defined outcome products and buffered products that are becoming more and more popular, but but there's an expense to it that may or may not be necessary. I always felt, because we're investing in long-only blue-chip companies, that we, we want those stocks to appreciate. We want to ride them over time. The covered call writing is a modest hedge. The buffered products, like you described, the defined outcomes – Uh, Are going to involve greater expense because you're purchasing more insurance, which is perfect for for that investor looking for a little bit more security. But when I think of protective puts, I think of it exactly the way you just described it in that black swan scenario. You know, we want to spend a little bit of insurance money to protect the worst case scenario. So if markets have a 10 to 15, maybe even a 20% drawdown, it never feels good, but it happens, and it happens quite frequently over time from a historical sense. So if we put some black swan insurance that kind of kicks in at that 15 or 20 or 25% drawdown, it can become a very nominal insurance process that can be very valuable in in a a massive waterfall decline. So So I would encourage people to explore that for sure, because it's inexpensive and it's there for that worst case scenario. It's not something that we're buffering the absolute returns on a constant basis. So think of it as like a little bit less expensive insurance.
0: Kevin, I know that, uh, you know, option strategies are generally used to kind of, I guess, protect portfolios and generate income on the side. But I'm wondering, no uh, strategy is out without risk or complications. So I'm wondering, where do you see people getting into trouble with options?
2: Well that's a great question, Heather, and maybe a exchange traded Friday conversation for another day because we you know we could spend an hour talking about risks. It's like anything, any tool that you're using, any investment you're making, it can be as risky as you as you choose to to uh to, to to make it. And I think of like even crossing the street with your eyes closed isn't a really good practice, but but you can do it if you want. It's a better practice to to go to the crosswalk and wait for the light to turn green or the walk signal to give you the the go-ahead. And and I always think of options in the same regard. I mean, you can be extremely speculative or you can be very, very conservative. And part of the problem, I think, with adoption of options more um, broadly is that so many of us have heard stories and tales of friends or family or acquaintances of folks that have dabbled in the option market and, and lost all of their money. And from a speculator standpoint, you can look at the options market sometimes as a casino where the returns can be very large, but the percentage uh, of success can be very small. So from our lens, we look at option selling, option writing, covered call writing as a means of generating cash flow. When we sell a covered call, we're bringing in a premium and we keep that whether the stock, the underlying position goes up, down or sideways. Which, which lends itself to the second part of your question that I wanted to articulate, which is the option piece may or may not be the real risk. For us, when we own a position, when we own a stock, if it goes down, that's the real risk because the premiums are modest. If you own a stock that's a $100 a share, hypothetically, and you bring in a dollar of covered call premium, it sounds great unless that stock goes from $100 down to $40, then that $1 buffer is, is um, not not as exciting when you look at the $59 unrealized loss that you're staring at on paper. So I think that it's it's in large part uh, option speculation that's risky. And then on the other hand, it's the underlying positions that you own that produce more risk than, than the options that you may introduce from a hedging standpoint.
1: That makes a lot of sense, Kevin. Do you Do you have any data on who the typical market participants in the option market are today obviously, like you mentioned, there's people doing systematic, you know, covered call strategies. But you also seem to have this growing number of people using them for speculation or even gambling. And then, kind of as a follow-up, do you have any thoughts on this whole zero-day to expiration option phenomenon?
2: Well, I think that for the speculator, that's a um, you know a, a wonderful slot machine or or a roulette wheel, more more so than a true hedging or investment strategy. But again, anything that we can do to introduce people to to the options space, I think, is constructive uh, as long as people aren't losing too much money in the education process. Both the OIC, the Options Institute Council, and the CBOE, the Chicago Board of Options Exchange, produce incredible data on the volume and and notional volume of of options. And although I, I can't quote it specifically, I will tell you that if you look at their sites, and they update it at least quarterly, if not monthly, The exponential option trading that has increased since 2002, just for the past 20 years, is is remarkable. And it's both retail investors who are learning and educating themselves on on how to use options, whether it's for defense or offense. And in large part, its institutions just becoming more and more involved in in hedging strategies. it's it's a wonderful um, growth in, in in terms of the notional value of options that have been traded on a daily basis over the past twenty years, and as long as it's done properly and efficiently, which so, so far it has been, uh, I would expect that growth rate to continue.
0: Kevin, you've got your firm has three strategies listed on the website, and I was wondering, can you tell me about those strategies and? whether they are options-based or not?
2: Yeah, Heather, everything we do is uh, option-based to the extent that we introduce covered call writing into the, into the mix. And again, we're using that as a little bit of a defensive hedge, not really a systematic approach to generate cash flow. Although when we write covered calls, even if it's at a limited extent, even sometimes a, a frugal uh, way in which we'll, we'll write covered calls, the byproduct of it is cash flow. And we have a, a hedged ETF portfolio that, you know, quite frankly, you, you and I have been talking about for over 15 years, and it's a strategy that uses exchange-traded funds in a, in a tactical manner. And I know that that has grown in popularity to a point that neither one of us have, you know, perhaps would have dreamed 15, 20 years ago. And that's a legacy strategy that, that's probably our longest-running. Our flagship portfolio is our enhanced dividend income strategy, which we've been running for over 11 years at an SMA, and that's where everyone can access us in the ETF space under the symbol DIVO. We created this as an ETF clone six years ago, and it's you know we couldn't be more proud of that strategy. 25 to 30 best of breed blue chip stocks. They're in, in, in really more than anything in, in the dividend growth space. So it's not an alt option product that's weird. It's just core blue chip, best of breed dividend growers. And we sprinkle in some covered call writing to help buffer a little bit of the downside. And and, and, and the byproduct is improving a little bit of cash flow. The other strategy is a more growth oriented one. So if you look up the risk spectrum, we also have a GDIP, which is a growth portfolio based on the Russell 1000 growth index that we're using covered call writing very uh, actively to, to provide some alpha it's, it's more risky when you're talking about growth names, but they have more robust option premiums. So each one of those three strategies kind of covers the risk spectrum for investors. But it's Devo and our enhanced dividend income product that really is our flagship that now has over collectively $8 billion in it, which is amazing. Again, knowing me for as long as you have in the kind of the history of the firm. And then we're also very proud, I know you didn't ask it, but we've recently launched an iDevo product also with Amplify Investments. And it's taking all of the Devo best of breed, highest quality dividend focused companies outside of the U.S. using ADRs and then using U.S.-based options in a more robust manner to generate a cash flow target of in a five to eight percent range. So if, if you're going to invest internationally and I'm not you know suggesting that someone does or does not, but if you have to, you know why not take the Devo methodology and take a look at iDevo?
0: Absolutely.
1: Finally, Kevin, what do you see as the biggest gaps in education when it comes to options? What can you know the media industry and us as reporters do to help educate people about this space?
2: Well, Samit, so, so you, you and Heather have been you know, c- kind enough to interview me for over 15 years, and I'm, I'm always thrilled to, to have the opportunity to share option education with, with all, all of your listeners, your viewers, your, your audience, and, and your readers in the old days. So I, I would encourage everyone to, to look at the OIC and the CBOE. Both are referenced to be you know, kind of previously as far as option data. But also, they have tremendous classes on education that run the gambit, you know, from multi-leg options to, to very basic options and, and introductions. I don't believe, at least with the OIC, I know it's a nonprofit, so you're talking about getting some of the, the best instruction at the uh, cheapest prices, which I think are free. So, so those are those are some terrific ways to, to really get an introduction into options. If you want a shameless plug, you could also look at my book, Walk Toward Wealth. Which has um, some some pretty good basics on covered call writing and touches a little bit on protective puts. But th- th- these are things that you want to educate yourself on with anything having to do with investments, you know, how to how to buy stocks, how to allocate assets, how to systematically invest in dollar cost average, how to learn about utilizing options, how to balance between stocks and bonds, and, and how to maintain a risk tolerance that's appropriate for you and your, your emotional profile. So I think that there's just an incredible uh, opportunity to can never stop learning. And there's there's so many resources out there that are fantastic that um, I, I I'm always reading and I'm always trying to learn myself each and every day.
0: For sure. For sure. We'll have to leave it there, Kevin. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. It's been very educational today. Listeners. I hope you enjoyed this episode. You can find this and all other Exchange Traded Fridays episodes on ETF.com or on any major podcast platform. See you next week.